wasn't at Harmony, but praise God. Praise God that um, it went as well as it did. My name is Bill, and I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm an elder here, and I'm better than I deserve. And you know, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're better than you deserve too. And we just have to thank God for that. I was so excited to, you know, we have an opportunity to pray for Sasha and Abby, and so excited for them. I knew Abby when she was pretty small, and I remember I, I worked in the school 100 years, but anyway, you know, um, I remember Abby being in second grade, and I'd have to supervise a couple hundred kids and said, Abby, come help me. You know, and I'd say, Abby, go over there and take care of that, you know, and, and she would. She was born a leader. And I do feel for her siblings. No, I'm, te- I, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But, but what it, you know, I was jumping for joy when she was getting into education. Just jumping for joy. And, and anyway, um, I'm going to read Judges 17 and then pray. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. His mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, and his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image and it was in the house of Micah and the man of Micah had a shrine and he also had an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did that was right in his own eyes now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And he, and as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where... I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with a man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest. And it was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us so. Thank you for giving us your word, Lord. And thank you for this passage. And, and I, I just pray that um, Pastor would um, enlighten us, Lord. And may the Spirit be here so we can understand. We can understand, um, understand what it means for us, Heavenly Father, in, in our but truly with our hearts, Heavenly Father. May the eyes of our hearts be open to that, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for being um, the loving and powerful God you are, the mighty God, the guide of all creation. And Lord, I, I ask for forgiveness for, for me, for us, Heavenly Father, that we, um, 
for us to, when we run other places, Heavenly Father, when we should be running to you, when we should be looking to you to fill all of our needs, to fill the needs that only you can fill, Heavenly Father. And I just thank you for being the faithful God you are, the loving God, the, the merciful God, because you are a great God and you love us so, Heavenly Father. And Lord, thank you for being the, the Father to us that um, our earthly fathers cannot be, Heavenly Father, because you are the perfect and loving God that you are, Lord. And Lord, I... I pray for North Shore. I pray for protection from Satan, Lord. I pray for the ministries here. I pray that we can be a, a body that loves you so, and we, that loves others so, Heavenly Father, that they would know that would only come from you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for um, Dick Hansen and his recovery and his well-being, Heavenly Father. I, I pray for, for MJ and that she's, she's feeling well, Heavenly Father. I, I do pray for Brenda, Lord, and just be continuing to touch her, Lord. And, and touch her body and, and be protecting her, Heavenly Father. Thank you that Martha made it home safely, Lord. And I thank you for just being in our lives, Lord, and loving us so and, and, and protecting us, Lord. And, and Lord, may we be a, a praying people, a people that just run to you and love you, Heavenly Father. And Lord, I pray for the dads here, Lord, and what a privilege and an honor it is to be a father, Lord. And Lord, I, I pray that each one of us would, would, would love our wives, as Christ loved the church, Lord, and love our children and be, be servant leaders. I just thank you for being our God and, and just bless Pastor now as he brings the word and, and may the Holy Spirit be here and may our hearts be open. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the book of Judges. And we're in this, this next section. We begin a new section today. It's the last section of the book of Judges, this last five chapters. And it differs significantly from the, what we've seen so far. Uh, in the first section that we just finished, we've seen these exploits of these deliverers or these judges that God raised up during this very chaotic, chaotic time in the history of Israel. And so the exploits of people like Othniel and Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Deborah and Samson are highlighted, warts and all, and there are, as we've seen, many warts, especially on some of these people. As we move into chapter 17 and 18, we're going to look at 18 in just a minute, Bill read 17, the focus changes. And so at this point, the author dramatically shifts his attention from the judges to the broader nation of Israel, okay? Chapters 17 to 18 turn the spotlight on the nation's religious Life. What was the Jews' conception of Yahweh, and how did that understanding influence how they practiced their Judaism? Okay? This story is not presented as one dramatic example of apostasy in an otherwise God-fearing, devout context. It's written to represent a typical slice of life, of the spiritual life in Israel during this time before King Saul was anointed. As you read this story you notice the picture of national life portrayed by the author in this section is a familiar one. By that I mean the religious life of the larger community sadly mirrors the paganized spiritual life of the judges themselves, especially this last judge named Samson. The author pinpoints the heart of Israel's sin in 17.6 and again in 18.1 where he says, "...in those days there was no king in Israel." And the author is not, in this instance, referring to the absence of a human king. In other words, what we need is a David. That's not what he's talking about here. We know what he's saying. 
What he's saying is the people are not submitting to Yahweh as their king, and we know he means that because he explains in the second half of verse 6, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the problem wasn't fundamentally that there was no human king sitting in Jerusalem. It was that everybody had set themselves up as their own king in their own eyes in the place of Yahweh. This story also reveals that although they were not submitting to Yahweh as their king, the Jews nonetheless remain very outwardly religious people. This is why these stories can be a bit vexing. Because there's such a difference between what's going on inside and what is being said outside. These people define what Isaiah says and what Jesus later says in the Gospel when he says, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is only made up of rules taught by men. You're going to see that pattern replicate over and over and over in these last five chapters. We see it in chapter 17, which illustrates this reality. We meet this name, man named Micah, who has a very religious name. Micah means, who is like Yahweh? And he, of course, steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. When his mother utters a curse against whoever stole the money, Micah decides he better fess up and confess this theft so that he is not subject to the curse. And his mother, in a truly bizarre response, blesses her thieving son and expresses profound gratitude to Yahweh. She expresses her gratitude to Yahweh by taking a portion of the silver, this is as an expression of gratitude to Yahweh, and giving it to the silversmith so that he can make a carved pagan image and a graven metal image of some pagan god. Micah also adds a religious shrine, a pagan priestly garment called an ephod, and some other idols. All of that is done to show gratitude to Yahweh. The fact that this pagan tribute to Yahweh was in fact an abomination to God doesn't seem to register with Micah, who rounded out his religious collection by recruiting a wandering Levite who happened to be looking to place to hang his shingle, his priestly shingle. The author tells us in verse 13 that Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest, as if there was ever any place where there was a personal priest made room for in the, in the law. Mike and the Le Levi settle on a mutually agreement compensation package. A deal is struck. And as we leave Micah in chapter 17, he is sitting privy. He's got his mother's blessing. He's got a set of idols. He's got a shrine and a priest to oversee his seemingly blossoming spiritual life. And of course, he thinks he has the blessing of Yahweh. Now remember, the root cause of Micah's incredible self-deception here and the twisted judgments that he makes here is that Micah, like the rest of Israel, is not submitting to Yahweh as king. And so in the void that that creates, the absence of any orthodox, God-centered practice of faith, he creates a religion of his own making, a corrupt, self-serving religion of the flesh, of this earth. So the author tells this story to reveal that even though the Jews had walked away from God in their hearts completely, they still outwardly practiced a deeply corrupted form of Judaism, which is not unknown today. 
In this way, they could keep the parts of their faith that had emotional or sentimental value for them while dismissing the elements of Judaism that required them to deny their self-centered and fleshly appetites. And in place of those elements of Judaism, they substituted a set of man-made religious practices that would allow them to indulge their sinful and self-centered desires. That's what's going on here in chapter 17. And in principle, it's no different than what is happening in churches that call themselves Christian, but who take their marching orders primarily not from the Word of God, but from the world and this fallen culture. Just this week, some of you may have read the article about the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is a cousin to our denomination, started in the same place, the same year, closely related. It's struggling today, genuinely struggling with heresy. Influential elements within the denomination have compromised on some biblically black and white moral issues, while at the same time claiming to be squarely evangelical. Now, unlike mainline Protestantism, who long ago with their liberal theology adopted Micah's brand of overtly compromised religion, evangelicals do this not by rejecting overtly the Scripture outright. Instead, we just find new ways to interpret some sections of the Bible that enable us to bend to the culture, but tragically, which often flies in the face of 2,000 years of church history. This story is a case study of this counterfeit religion of the flesh, and it reveals several of the indicators of a person when a church or a person, or in the case of Israel, a nation, is guilty of practicing a religion that may in some superficial ways look and feel authentic, but is in fact filled with self-deception and self-centeredness. Micah and the Levite he hires here as his priest were blind to the fact that what they were doing was completely opposed to God and his revealed will. They thought this new and far more flexible form of Judaism was just fine. And they were blind. That sets us up for chapter 18, which I'm going to read now, which is a continuation of the story. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah, from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, say Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. And the priest said to him, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? 
Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and camped at Kiriath-Jehiram in Judah. On this account, that place which is called Mahanan Dan, to this day, behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what we will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved images, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal images, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come out with such a company? And he said, Did you take my gods that I made and the priests and go away? And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back home, back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Long section of scripture. If you have studied a map of the twelve tribes of Israel, the map is a bit puzzling. And the reason is because there are two separate areas called Dan. Anybody ever noticed that before? First, there's this rather small coastal tribe located in the west-central part of Israel, uh, more or less in the armpit of the tribe of Ephraim, and located just south, is bordered by south of, on the Judah, on the south. But in addition to that area called Dan, there's also this city, in the northernmost part of Israel, about 30 miles east of Tyre, it's also called Dan. This story, chapter 17 and 18, tells us how this northern city became part of Israel and how a tribe 100 miles to the south of the city claimed it as belonging to them. 
The mark of the counterfeit fleshly religion we see lived out here over and over again is corrupt self-seeking religion is a mixture of sincere but self-deceived expressions of faith directed toward achieving man-made, man-centered goals. Now that's long, that's as short as I could make it. Corrupt self-centered religion, self-serving religion is a mixture of sincere but self-deceived expressions of faith directed toward achieving man-made, man-centered goals. The story, all the story, illustrates that truth. This is exactly like the faith that we saw in Samson last week, isn't it? Okay? He genuinely looked to God. We saw that. But only to get him to do what he wanted to do to satisfy his own vengeance. This story reveals that he was really just simply reflecting the heart of the nation as a whole. Nothing special about Samson. He was just part of the mix. No one can deny that these scouts from Dan who were looking for additional territory for their growing tribe, expressed genuine faith in God. They did. We see this in a couple of places. First, shortly before they begin their journey to their new potential northern city, they're quick to ask Levite, the priest, in verse 5, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. So they meet a Levite, and they're wanting to hear God's word on whether their task will be blessed by God. The mixing of outward faith like that with hearts that are far from him is not at all uncommon in the scripture or, sadly, in the world today. The culturally compromised influencers within the evangelical covenant denomination, and again, maybe the local church here that's a covenant church may be fine. I'm not reflecting on that at all. I'm talking about denomination-wide. Very sincerely, those people that are leading that denomination into heresy are very sincere. I have no doubt that they believe in all of their hearts that they're doing God's will. We can see contemporary mica figures every day on the national news. It's not uncommon for a, a politician running for office in the national news, and this is really the first presidential election where we've seen it this overtly. But today it's, it's not uncommon for a politician running for national office to speak glowingly of his or her Christian faith, a faith that in no way resembles the Christianity actually revealed in the Bible. Okay? This expression of sincere but misguided faith is here too when the scouts return to report back to the other men from Dan what they've seen. In verse 10, these scouts say, The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in all the earth. These people are trusting God. They believe that it was God who put this land in their hands, and they're trusting him to get it to them. These people are asking for God's direction and are trusting that God will give them success as they march over 100 miles to a very well-fortified city. Do you hear that faith? There's trust in God here. Like Samson's faith, this is real, it's just horribly misguided. The author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to feel this. But he also wants us to see what's underneath these expressions of misguided faith. First, we know that this land up north that they were spying out was not part of the land that Yahweh had designated as this tribe's inheritance. God never allotted this northern city to the tribe of Dan when he was sovereignly parceling out the various tribal territories. Joshua 19, verses 40 to 46, records the inheritance that God gave to this tribe. It says, The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans. And the territory of its inheritance included Zorah, Eshtoyol, and then he names 15 
Hebrew cities that encompass the tribe of Dan. That's Dan. That's what God gives Dan as their inheritance, those 17 cities and villages. So if you're looking at a map of the 12 tribes, this is this area allotted to Dan that's west-central Israel, bordering Ephraim and Judah that we talked about earlier. Verse 48 in Joshua 19 adds, This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. The city of Laish is nowhere to be found. It's a hundred miles away, which in the Middle East is a long way in Israel. Another thing that's really important, if you go back to chapter 1 in Judges, you see something that happened when Dan was trying to drive the pagans out, the Amorites away from them. Okay? The author reveals in verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. The truth of the matter is, God had given to the tribe of Dan a fine inheritance, consisting of these 17 towns and villages. They completely failed to trust God to work through them to drive the Amorites out of the area. So as the tribe grew and were forced to share this land with these native Amorites, they were crowded for space. So instead of coming to God and confessing their unbelief and their unfaithfulness to him and asking him to reinvigorate them to conquer the land that he'd already given them, they do an end run. They instead look past these persistent, pesky neighboring Amorites who were squatting on their actual inheritance and they improvise on God's plan, and they go looking for some other place that would require less effort and less faith. This is what the false religion of the flesh looks like. We've all practiced it. God tells us to do a difficult thing. We don't like it. We fail to trust Him. We fail to obey Him. So we substitute another easier way to get what we want. The scouts spy out the northernmost part of Israel and focus on this city of Laish, probably under the protective umbrella of Tyre, which was a powerful Phoenician city. But Laish was far enough away, 30 miles away, that Tyre was not in any position to protect them. So they were isolated and vulnerable to attack. And so these scouts from Dan see this lovely community located in one of the most fertile spots in Palestine. They observe that these people are much more vulnerable to attack than these stubborn Amorites that they can't get out of their own backyard. So they make their move. They're trusting in Yahweh here. The problem, of course, is they're on a mission he never gave them. And they were in direct disobedience to the plan that he had for their tribe. But they're trusting Yahweh. Beyond that, let's focus on the interactions with this Levite that Micah had hired as his personal priest. This is fascinating. First, notice that these Danite scouts had never intentionally gone looking for a priest to receive God's instruction. That's not what the text says. They happened upon this Levite. This was purely incidental to what they had already decided they were going to do anyway. Right? Their meeting with him didn't flow from any burden to get God's will on this or to find out whether he was going to succeed or not. In their good fortune, they just happened to meet him on the way. And you can surely hear these self-deceived folks 
convincing themselves, you know, God must really be with us and blessing us because, after all, He sent this Levite to confirm our mission. These people are so self-deceived. Also, when the spies return to their tribe and they recruit 600 warriors to go back with them to conquer Laish, they make a return visit to Micah's house that they'd been to earlier. Now they've got 600 of them garrisoned around the gate, and they go into Micah's house and they brazenly steal from him all the religious artifacts that he'd been collecting and his priest to boot. This man, who had become like one of Micah's sons, according to what Bill read, So the author reveals to us that these men, who seemingly were trusting in God, had earlier noticed and secretly coveted Micah's impressive pagan religious collection. So on their return trip, when they brought their muscle with them, these 600 men, they relieved Micah of his idols and his personal priest. And they have this rather humorous exchange with Micah where they basically tell Micah and his supporters to shut up and go home. They'd taken what they wanted, thank you, you don't have the, the forces to take it back from me, and so the hapless Micah returns home without his idols or any of the other spiritual accoutrements that he'd been accumulating. The priest, curiously enough, rather than be saddened by being forced to part with someone who'd been so kind to him and who looked at him as his own son, he is instead glad, because this is a big promotion to him. He went from being a small-time personal priest to the priest of an entire clan of Israel. God is surely blessing him too. Finally, notice the stunning conclusion of this story. These warriors from Dan, who we know by this time are hardened idolaters and thieves, who are on a mission that God did not send them on, that's totally self-centered, utterly opposed to God's plan, these men enjoy wild success. Verse 27, but the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire and there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. Success. Man-centered goals were achieved. The maps of Israel prove it. These folks got some of the choicest land in all of Palestine. They named it after their forefather, Dan, the only tribe to establish a satellite community outside their tribe. Hadn't Yahweh been kind to them? The author wants us to feel the tension here. He wants us to get this. Because we who live in a postmodern America need to see the relevancy to us. We live in this amoral culture where pragmatism rules. These people had success, therefore Yahweh had to be blessing them. Same thing rules today and too often in the church. If you do something for God that succeeds, that is, achieves whatever goal you have, it must be right. We see this happen all the time, in big communities and large. Many in the evangelical church gauge a church and its ministry not by whether it's faithful to Scripture, not by whether it's all practicing the spiritual disciplines, not by whether they're loving each other, but whether it's growing. If a church has experienced or has in the past experienced significant growth, it has to be doing something right. 
Some of the most rapidly growing evangelical churches in America are churches where biblical truth and biblical values have been substituted with the fallen values of this world a long time ago. One of the largest churches in America in Texas is pastored by a heretic, and they meet in a stadium. Denominational officials often hold up those churches as shining examples of healthy churches. It's churches like those that produce statistics like this one. This is from 2002. I couldn't believe this when I read this. A study of the church by Barna, which is a group that studies the church, 52% of evangelicals, these are evangelical Christians, they agreed with the following statement. When people are born, they are neither good nor evil. They make a choice between the two as they mature. 52%. Now to be charitable, certainly some of those people didn't understand the question, and so they answered wrongly in an innocent kind of way. But for those who did and honestly answered the way they did, they're heretics. Okay? That statement represents one of the key tenets of a heresy called Pelagianism, okay? And if you genuinely believe that statement, you cannot genuinely believe the gospel because you're at odds with a biblical understanding of why Christ had to come and die on the cross. Original sin. Many very successful churches are producing people, 52%, who are either lost or very immature in their faith. That's hardly success from God's point of view. George MacDonald's viewpoint is a whole lot closer to the Bible. He said anything done apart from God is destined to either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. The Jews from the tribe of Dan were successful, but their success was a miserable success because they were doing that which was opposed to God. And this has been a problem for decades in the evangelical church. A.W. Tozer, who died in 1963, commented powerfully in his book, Rut, Rut, or Revival, how most believers easily assume that what is going on in the churches of God, even when it's not. He says this, most people, even if they happen to be in any church, if they happen to be in any church anywhere, accept the status quo without knowing or caring to inquire how it came to be. In other words, they do not ask, oh God, is this of you? Is this divine? Is this out of the Bible? Because it was done and is being done and because a lot of people are doing it, they assume it's all right. And songs are written about it. It gets into magazines. Pretty soon people are called to it. And the first thing we know, we've gotten into a religious situation that is not of God. It is not according to Scripture and God is not pleased with it at all. Rather, he's angry. I wish we could say that that was irrelevant today. Church history is filled with examples of this. Mainline Protestantism decided long ago that the best way to minister to the world around us is to become like the world around us. That's in their founding documents. That's why they do the things that they do. That's why they're vigorously supporting even the most extreme departures of biblical morality. Okay? Those mainline Protestant churches grew like crazy during the baby boom. You can't hardly go to a mainline Protestant church and find that they didn't have an education wing built on to accommodate all the growth that were coming up with these families having all these kids. Okay? I grew up in a church like that. Okay? They grew like crazy. Great success. study done two years ago estimates that at the current rate of decline, the mainline church in America will be dead in 21 years. But it's not just the mainline churches or ancient Israel or even the evangelical covenant church. Any of us 
This is the warning we need to take. Any of us can fall into this kind of self-deception, believing we're in God's will when we're not, if we fail to recognize Yahweh as our king. That's the point. That opens the door to this kind of ridiculous deception. And so the question for us becomes, am I submitting to Yahweh as my king? Because if I'm not, things that I would never in a million years believe that I would believe in five years, I'll be believing them. The truth of the gospel and adherence to the word of God, submitting to Christ as Lord, that's what keeps any church or any professed believer from going off the deep end. Only if we embrace that apart from a miracle of God's grace, we are hopelessly lost in sin. Only as we embrace the fact that the only hope we have of being saved from God's holy judgment is Jesus Christ who came to live a perfect life that we could never live and die a sin-atoning death that we deserve to die as we trust in his sacrificial death as payment for the just penalty of our sin. Only as we carefully follow the inspired word of God in the pages of scripture will we avoid the same kind of self-deception we see in the book of Judges. This is a warning to us. The story in and of itself has some very entertaining features. But we need to be blood earnest about this. Because it can happen to us as a church, it can happen to me as a pastor, and it can happen to you as followers of Christ. It reminds us that if we're to avoid the plight of these pathetic Jews, we must look to God as our King. Now, if you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and your ultimate treasure, do that today. Because the path that you're on seems right to you. The Proverbs say, the way of a man seems right to him, but the end thereof is death. Okay? You seem like you're on the right path. It feels right to you. But if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's not. And you're on your way to judgment because you're deceived. I had a I had a, another pastor friend said, do you know when you're being deceived? And you don't. Because if you knew, you wouldn't be deceived. Right? Makes sense. So you don't know when you're being deceived. But you can know to some degree whether you're submitting to Christ as king. May God give all of us the grace to look to God with a faith that is defined by the truth of Scripture for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Our Father in God, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the need that it meets today in our lives. If there are areas where we are even now looking across to a place that's not orthodox, to a place that's not your will for us, Father, help us to be humble and see that we could be just like these people in the book of Judges going on a mission, doing something that we think is God. We're very sincere about it, and yet we're completely off base. Father, help us to be humbled by this. God, we all need to be humbled by this story and others like it because, God, we could do this. This could happen to us. Be where you stand, lest you fall. Father, help us to follow you for Jesus' sake. In his name, amen.